Hey, what's up, bookworms? Just want to let you guys know that these videos were recorded without a podcast method in mind. So a lot of things are going to be lost in context. So I want to make sure that you understand that the optimal way to experience this content is still through the YouTube channel, Mike's Book Reviews. So if things are lost in translation a little bit, that's the reason why. But I want to thank you for listening, and I hope to talk to you soon. You know what I love about this series is every time that Darrow starts giving like one of his like pre-war speeches, you feel like you're about ready to call down an iron rain. But guys, let's take a look at Golden Sun by Pierce Brown. They say a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, but they made no mention of the heart. For 700 years, my people have been enslaved without voice, without hope. Now I am their sword. And I do not forgive, and I do not forget. So let him lead me. Let him think that he owns me. Let him welcome me into his house so I might burn it down. Friendships take minutes to make, moments to break, and years to repair. Some men have threads of life so strong that they fray and snap those around them. But enough friends have paid for my war. This one's on me. It's not victory that makes a man, it's his defeats. Modern war is fearing the air, the shadows, fearing the silence. Death will come and I won't even see it. I will die, you will die. We will all die and the universe will carry on without care. All that we have is that shout into the wind, how we live, how we go, and how we stand before we fall. You will fall to ruin because you believe that expectations to the rule make new rules. We'll tell all who will hear that the Reaper sails to Mars and he calls for an iron rain. We are not our station in life. We are us, the sum of what we've done what we want to do, and the people who we keep close. And what is the bloody damn point of surviving this cold world if I run from the only warmth it has to offer? Home isn't where you're from. It's where you find light when all light grows dark. You taught me that once and I'm a better man for it, but now it's my turn to teach you. Men can change, but sometimes they have to fall, and sometimes they have to leap. To free them, to protect them, we must be savages. So give me evil, give me darkness. Make me the bloody damn devil if we can bring even the faintest ray of light.
Hello, howlers and bookworms. Mike back today to talk a little more Red Rising. Today, guys, we're going back to 2015 to talk about book two in the Red Rise, the original trilogy of Red Rise. This, of course, is Golden Sun, guys. This was a huge hit when it came out. Debuted at number six on the New York Times bestseller. And I know that a lot of people kind of snicker at awards like these, but it did win the uh, the Reader's Choice Award for on Goodreads for Best Sci-Fi Novel of 2015. I know we always kind of clown because it seems like all the best books are never really nominated, but I have to agree with the best science fiction book of 2015 right there. Yeah, I'm kind of tipping my hand a little bit, but guys, uh, yeah, I, I love this book upon first reading. If you don't know, uh, I have reviewed book number one on the channel, and I talked about there that this was a reread, and that's why I'm redoing these reviews on a reread because I feel like your opinions can change. When I read the first book initially, I wasn't sure if I was going to continue with the series. The only reason I did is because I'd already had all these on hardcover and said, well, I guess I'll go ahead and try the second book. And it blew me away. I loved it. So in my memory, did that stick? Well, we're going to find out about that today, guys. We're going to begin by talking about what is this book about? Now, as a Red, Darrow grew up working in the mines deep beneath the surface of Mars, enduring backbreaking labor while dreaming of a better future that he was building for his descendants. But the society he faithfully served was built on lies. Darrow's kind had been betrayed and denied by their elitist masters, the Golds. And their only path to liberation is revolution. Darrow sacrifices himself in the name of the greater good and becomes a Gold, infiltrating their privileged realm so that he can destroy it from within. But a lamb among wolves in a cruel world, Darrow finds friendship, respect, and even love but also the wrath of powerful rivals. To wage and win the war that will change humankind's destiny, Darrow must confront the treachery arrayed against him, overcome his all-too-human desire for retribution, and strive not for violent revolt, but hopeful rebirth. Though the road ahead is fraught with danger and deceit, Darrow must choose to live for more if he is to free his people. Guys, this takes us back to 2015. This is Golden Sun. I really do love this book, guys. And I feel like if you follow this channel at all for any number of time, you know that I'm gonna I love all these books, and I've got plenty of great things to say about it. But on a reread, guys, I have so much more to say about this book than I had the first time. We're gonna begin with talking about what makes it good or bad. I always like to start with the good because, damn it, I like to think I'm a positive guy. With this, I feel like it immediately feels like a different series. All those things that I said I was looking for with that first book, I wanted it to be more sci-fi. I was hoping for more inner games and less hunger games. All that stuff that I really did want. I got here looking for uh, you know some of the, some more themes of you know humanity and what, making what what choice do we stop becoming human because we're making such these awful awful choices and all kinds of things like that we have all that in this book and it feels like night and day difference in his writing style now I know a lot of times when you're trying to sell a book you go through many many drafts and obviously you've been uh, away from book number one for a while so after uh, I believe that after Pierce had had distanced himself from that first book for a while he had probably learned a few things as a writer some things some feedback that he got after that first book and said, here's some things I want to kind of do differently in this one and you can tell the difference I don't think the first one is a poorly written book at all I just feel like this one is a much better written book because the pacing's better the themes are better and it just honestly it just it feels more grown up I never really once get that sense of, ah, oh, this feels like it's kind of standing on the shoulder of greater books that have come before it, you know, Lord of the Flies, The Hunger Games, uh, Ender's Game, as I talked about. With this one, I feel like it becomes its own thing. It embraces science fiction, which is something I really, really wanted that first book to do. And it explores a little more themes than I think that we got in that first one. So it, it kind of stepped outside of that comfort zone of, okay, I want to kind of get this demographic. You know what? I just want to get a big demographic of readers to check the story out because I think there's a little bit of everything for everyone. He does that with this book. I feel like, like I said, everything is more grown up, better paced, 
And beginning is you look at the first book and you're like, okay, great. Book one, you're in the Institute. Book two, you're going to be in the Academy. Here we go again. Yeah, then you get to chapter two and you're like, oh, no, it's not like that. So I think he pulls the rug out from you right away. And that's a theme that sticks with the rest of this book, guys. He does pull the rug out from you a lot. Now, I made... I made proclamations the first time I reviewed Red Rising in that I felt like uh, Darrow was kind of a, a little bit of a, a Gary Stew, a little bit like he never really messed up. And then on reread, I was like, no, he, he messed up a lot. Well, uh, Darrow would be messing up a lot in this book, guys. And I, I think that that's one of the things that you've got to understand here is that Darrow in his mind, this is a first person narrative. And in his mind, of course, he's the smartest, the smartest person in the room. He's always the smartest person in the room. And this right away, he gets a reality check early that, oh, I'm not quite all that that I thought that I was. And, you know, things were moving a little quicker than I thought they were going to move. Actually, they moved a little slow, but now they're moving too fast in the wrong direction, I think. That's kind of what he goes through. So he isn't as perfect as he thinks he is. And that gets, uh, you know, that really does give him the reality check that I think that he needs and helps his character, helps his character grow a little bit. And if I thought, if you thought the book one was predictable, guys, this book has so many twists and turns that you will never see most of them coming. You might guess some things because I have had some people be like, oh, you didn't see that coming? And I'm like, no, I didn't. I didn't at all because I thought that I knew the way the story was going and I was clearly very, very wrong. I think it presents the idea that revolution in your mind is obviously not as easy as it is doing the real thing. Like, you know, any young person is going to be like, oh, if I was in charge, this would all be running better. And then when you get that opportunity, you're like, wait, I don't know what to do. And I feel like uh, Darrow obviously thinks again, man, I'm going to be in charge of this rebellion. If I was in charge of Sons of Ares, we'd already done this and that. And you see when he gets a little bit of power, he's completely powerless. He has no idea what to do. He's kind of lost in the darkness. He, he's just kind of drifting. He has no idea what's going to happen. And when he does finally get in touch with the right people again, it's like, yeah, we didn't really have a plan. And I feel like that's a theme that isn't really explored very much in books like this, about how hard it is to put together something like this and that you think you might have best laid plans, but you know what? Things don't usually go the way that you plan. I love that he does do that because I think many, many things are idealized in youth and it continues to kind of get inside of our protagonist's head here and show you that, yeah, you think you're the smartest person in the room, but you are clearly not. Lots of other people have been playing this game for a long time and they didn't end up on top because they were stupid. And I think that's uh, something that a lot of books similar to this, that have these similar themes, always want to make the young protagonist the smartest person ever. All the adults are idiots. And this doesn't do that. Darrow is very smart. He's very intelligent. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's a doofus here. I'm just saying that it shows that, yeah, you're not the only smart person. And again, the adults are in charge because they are the adults and they understand that there are certain things you can and cannot do. So I love that he doesn't he doesn't really stay, uh, shy away from that at all. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, that's just kind of, you know, just uh, assassinating your lead character. I don't think so. I think that having your character struggle a little bit, having your character get humbled once in a while, especially when, let's be honest, Darrow's a little cocky. Having him knock down a peg, I think that really helps the character grow to be humbled and say, okay, maybe I need to take my head out from my own ass and realize that I need to do some things. Maybe listen to some other people that are in charge and, uh, and maybe we can get on the right road again. But I love that there's new characters to hate in this one. Uh, lots of more Nero to go around this time. You know, the first one, Nero is kind of like, like almost like a cameo and then he's kind of like a shadowy figure. And then you see him again at the end. But with this, Nero is very much a presence through this whole book. And obviously you're going to love to hate Nero. I mean, because again, we know why. They set up a book one shows why you should hate him. But I think Pliny 
might be the most hated character in the series. Uh, I think that all the first-time readers that were reading this time on the Discord were all like, yeah, fuck Pliny forever. And I can't disagree. I can't disagree. Pliny is very much unlikable, and I, I think that's the way that he was written. He was written to be that character that you love to hate. And I think that's the thing of what Pierce does with all of his characters. You either hate to love them or you love to hate all of them. You know, I mean, I think there's a reason that, you know, even a character that everyone adores, like Severo, you can look at some things and be like, hmm. Like, for example, Severo in this book, he romanticizes war. He thinks it's just this thing that he wants. Months. And this is kind of reminiscent of like the you know the kids who were going off to Vietnam because you know their grandparents. I'm talking United States wars right now, guys. Sorry, because that's where I'm at. But you know their grandparents fought in in, in World War One, and their, their their fathers fought in World War Two. So they thought it was their turn with Vietnam, and they got there. And they realized it wasn't quite as glamorous and romanticized. And I think that that's something that Severo goes through in this book, and I think it's just handled wonderfully. So uh, another one is Aja. Aja is kind of like a force to be reckoned with in this book, and I think it's the first time where you feel like Darrow just, he might be outmatched, you know, and he might not have a shot against someone like this. And I love that because I felt like you really didn't need like that henchman. You had the Sovereign as like the big overall big bad. But you realize the Sovereign's a little up there in years. She's not going to be busting out a razor and kicking some ass. Well, that's why she's got Aja uh, to, to do all those things for her. And Aja is awesome. And I think the more we get to know about the, uh, the Ash Lord and things like that, makes Aja an even more compelling character. But uh, we finally get some face time with the Sovereign, like I said, and uh, Lorne Al Arcos. Now, Lorne is one that I felt like I wanted to know more about in that first book. It kept mentioning his name, and I'd be like, well, I kind of want to know more. In fact, at the ending of the first book, I was like, I kind of wish Darrow had listened to more people than just Nero, and I was kind of hoping he would go with Lorne. Well, you get lots of layers of that. You get to see that there is more to Lorne than meets the eye. And the more you learn about him, the more you want to know about him. And I think that's something this book does very well, is it gives great backstory to characters like Lorne. It gives great backstory to characters like Nero. Nero has a backstory in this, guys, that is full on like a song of ice and fire levels of amazing. It's really just like that. You just run that long con for revenge, and he just does it so, so good. It makes Nero like a more intriguing character, more than just a mustache-twirling bad guy. And I think that's something that a lot of authors don't do, is really give some context to your villains and be like, okay, well, I can see why they became the villain. You know, it, it makes a lot more sense this way. Yeah, so get to know a little bit more about Fitchner, and that's a character that I wasn't sure how much we were going to get after that first book, and Fitchner does take a, a different role in this book, and I do like the backstory for him. It's actually quite heartbreaking, and again, I think that you can get one that's either like, uh, it's either heartbreaking, or yeah, I can see why you grew up to be this messed up. You know, there's always things like that, and I think that's what drives these characters to become who we know them as now. So giving these characters great backstory, you know, because you've got the young characters, now you've got the older characters kind of mingling and intermingling here and it's good to know a little bit more about those older characters know about the shit that they've been through and that's what makes you want to get on their side a little bit so uh pierce is just great at character work guys i i, I think that for this only being the second book it's quite amazing how far he's come because i said there was characters in that first book that i was kind of like eh, about and in this one i like i really gave a damn like the relationship between roke and darrow i was really just completely invested in that that was a really really strong relationship that i wanted to see i wanted i mean of course you, you're like you're waiting to see cassius and darrow after what happened in the first book you're waiting to see that but with this one like the friendship side of it, between roke roke and darrow and a strained relationship that it is and seeing these things the whole time you're just like man darrow i really want you to fix this you know it gets because you have so much invested in these personal relationships because of the way that the characters interact with each other Again, Pierce is great at this. He really is, and that's why when bad things happen, you do give a damn. So again, character first guy, and that's one of the reasons I love this series so much is because Pierce is a great, great character writer. There's a lot of characters, as you've heard here, so I've just kind of rattled off a few dozen. And it's the thing is, he differentiates them so well 
that you have a reason to remember each one of them and you start memorizing those family trees and who's related to who and who wronged who and what family is feuding with which family. And it's just great. It's great. It's like you're fully invested in these two families that you're supposed to hate. You're supposed to hate Augustus and Bologna. And you're like really injured. You're, you're wanting to take sides. It's amazing. It's amazing he's able to do that. I think only George R. R. Martin's been able to do that as well. And that won't be the last time I make that comparison. And I think that's quite a tribute to Pierce. Before I move on, there is one more thing about how he handles some of his villains. He does give some gray characters or some characters that maybe have had a you know a questionable past, and maybe he's just trying trying to walk that fine line uh, between you know the, the side of light and the side of dark. Uh, you got Tactus, obviously, who had quite the arc in the first book. Well, it continues here. Uh, it's probably one of the most intriguing characters in this book, and of course, Adrius, the Jackal, does come back, and that is an interesting relationship between him and Darian. It does not go the way that you would expect it to. So a character I thought was just kind of like a mustache twirling bad guy in the first book uh, does get a lot more layers here. And uh, it's one of those things where you start saying, hmm, you're making a lot of sense. You know, there's a lot of things like that. And I think, again, that is just how you write great, great villains. And guys, while there is a romance, it's never forced. It's never rushed. It's never a part where you're just like, oh, God, can we move on with this chapter? And again, I, I know that the temptation is there usually to want to rush these romances, especially when this is just a trilogy. But he doesn't do that here. I think that he does, he avoids love triangles. Thank God, thank God, he avoids that. He does present the idea of something and kind of hints at it, but it never really goes anywhere. I never considered a love triangle when one part of it is just one-sided. And there is a character like that where it is just kind of one-sided and yeah, the person doesn't get reciprocated because he's interested in another relationship. And that's, that's perfectly fine with me it's the indecision stuff that usually bothers me when it comes to that. But uh, I love that, again, it just builds on the myths and the lore of this universe. I already mentioned the Ash Lord. I want to know so much more about this guy that decided to nuke a moon and all the stories behind that. You want to know what's going on with Lorne? Why is he where he's at? What's going on with this family? All these things, guys, are very, very intrigued to know. And the things that happen off the page between the two books, because two years do take place, between book one and two, and there are some things that are said, oh, this kind of did happen off the page. And I was like, man, I wouldn't mind having a little novella about something like that. But again, guys, I think this increasing rivalry between Augustus and Bologna is, is something that you really, really are a part of. Even if I do feel like Cassius kind of takes a, a back seat in this book, a little bit more than I was wanting, but I think the stage is set for what's coming in book three here that uh, that you're really into, all into that, that, that family versus family dynamic there. So I like that Pierce wears his influences on his sleeve. There are several Dune references here. That's obviously something I'm going to be very, very much involved in as Dune is my favorite book of all time. And I think he does it in a respectful way. Never once do I feel like, huh, you're just flat out ripping off Dune now. No, I think that he does it in a way that it's just a hat a hat tip to or a nod to you know one of his favorite authors who I know because when I did meet him at the book signing he did say that Dune was his favorite book of all time as well so I love that I love that and again this just feels like more of a sci-fi book you know and that's what I wanted I wanted this to lean heavier into sci-fi you got your spaceships you got your lasers you got your pew 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 you got jumping from planet to planet these are things I'm all interested in and again this just really just hit all of the parts that I wanted book one to do. This one did it. It did them all, and it did them with a big, giant, flashing exclamation point. And that was all I could really ask for, guys. And just the action scenes, I haven't even talked about these. They're just amazing. The action scenes are incredible, guys. You cannot get enough of them. And Iron Rain is the most amazing idea that I had read in science fiction up to this point. I just, I just, I love it so much. Shocking twists and turns, heartbreak. One of the best endings ever, which I don't want to spoil for you. 
And it's just so many modern authors are afraid to give you that Empire Strikes Back kind of ending. And Pierce has no problems doing that. He, he's really just there to put a foot on your throat and make you feel the pain and anguish that the characters are. But is any book perfect? Of course not. If there is bad to this, uh, I'd say there are still some of those gotcha moments. Like I said, when you're inside of the character's head, it's a first-person narrative. It's kind of it's kind of difficult to do the gotcha stuff. He does it again. It's better than book one, but there is one. Oh my god! And I'm going to talk to Howlerpod later this week. Uh, and I just I was just oh god, come on. But again, it doesn't ruin the book. I don't think. But it does in one of those where it's like, really, why are you why are you trying to keep this stuff secret? It's, it just it doesn't make sense really. But again, that's the problem with the first person narrative more than anything else. And I think maybe some of the reunions feel a little fast. It's like I didn't expect. Darrow to have one reunion that he had in his book quite so early. I thought that was maybe a book three thing. But again, I think maybe he had a roadmap for you know this trilogy. And he said, I wasn't going to have enough time to get that in book number three. It is kind of late in book two. So I, I let it slide. But again, that might, that might annoy some people that so fast you're having some of these reunions. And you'll understand when you get there. But you know that reunion is absolutely beautiful. So I'm not going to hold too much against it. But guys, why should you read it if you can't hear the enthusiasm in my voice. You can understand book one. If you were lukewarm on it like I was and you wanted something different, this is going to give it to you. Hopefully this is what you were lacking with book number one like me. I've gotten the feedback and I say nine out of 10 people are like, yes, you were right. Night and day difference between book one. And I'm so happy that that's happening because I, it was a point where I felt like, oh God, what if I've oversold this for people now? But again, I, I think it's just an amazing, amazing step up. Continues to expand the world. It feels fresh. These ideas don't feel like anything else I've ever read before. It's like just the idea of a razor. What an incredible weapon that is. You know, and you have this whole thing about it's not electronic. It's a chemical weapon. It's just such a neat idea that he has. I think any good sci-fi has to have a really good original weapon that isn't just a copy of a lightsaber. You know, I, I love that. But this is a ridiculously quick read, guys. You're going to fly through this book. You look at it and you think, oh, well, it's a little thicker than book one. I wouldn't be shocked if you finish it faster than book one because you cannot stop turning the pages. It's just an amazing setup, guys, and an ending that will have you reaching for book three immediately. It was very, very hard for me. If I wasn't doing this read-along like this, I would have went ahead and picked up book number three myself. But my final thoughts, guys, like I said, in my memory, this was one of the best science fiction books I've ever read. And I can safely say, yes, I still feel that way. Is it going to end up as still my favorite in this series? I don't know. I don't know because I remember Morningstar being right there, like right next to it. And the only the only reason I thought that maybe uh, maybe I had this ahead of Morningstar was because it was a surprise. You know, the book one I was kind of ho hum on, and then book two completely blew me away. And maybe by then I thought, okay, this guy's really really good. And then book three was just as good. But it was it was it was kind of that that turning moment of this book, uh, making me realize, oh my God, this is a series I'm going to love. So I don't know. I don't know. It's open for uh, reinterpretation when I reread Morningstar next month. But uh, I love this on a reread every bit as much. There were some things that I saw this time that I didn't see the first time. And I think that that is some things that are set up even past this trilogy. We're talking about the sequel books or some things that are set up in this book. Some characters that you might notice will pop up later in the story. And I'm not going to tell you which because I don't want you to know which ones are going to live or die or not. But I love that you get introduced to so many great new characters in this one. Some of them are some of my favorite characters in the series, like Victra. Victra, guys, might be my favorite character in this entire series. And this is your first introduction to her. Ragnar Valaris is another character I absolutely love. You get introduced to them, but you also say, say goodbye to some other ones. And it's a, it's, it's a rough it's a rough goodbye for a couple characters here. And uh, some of them, it, it's just... 
I never feel like it's fairy tale. You know, it's very realistic. Uh, something that I love that Stephen King would always do is sometimes he would kill a character before a character arc was complete. And you know why? Because that's life. That's real life. That's how things happen. We don't always get an open and shut case when a character dies, you know? And I, I actually love that. When you're dealing with war and stuff, anyone can die at any moment. And that's a theme that is explored greatly in this book. You know everyone's going to see it coming, and then there it is. Boom. You have, you have time to think about it. So that's really, really great, guys. I, I, I can say with confidence that I did not oversell this book and people are enjoying it. And I'm very, very happy that people are enjoying this read-along. And I hope that you will continue to join me. So guys, you want to hear some spoilers about this book where you're in luck because Tuesday night, the 28th, I'm going to be joined again by the folks over at HowlerPod. And I'll remember to have open the chat this time so I can see you guys' comments if you want to watch live. I, I hope that you guys will. I hope you guys have read this and you guys are ready to talk some spoilers because I can't wait to get into all of the stuff in this book because this book is just packed guys i'm talking a million miles an hour right now and i still feel like i didn't get to talk about everything that i wanted to talk about but i know you guys aren't going to watch a half hour review of this but we'll have probably a good hour of spoiler talk discussion then so guys golden sun did you read it what did you think where would you place it in this original trilogy still number one for me but again i'm going to be revisiting morningstar here this time next week so drop in the comments guys let me know what you think and i We'll talk to you there.